Father, would you please now, by your Spirit, continue to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your Word. May it not be said of us this morning that they have eyes, but they do not see, that they have ears, but they do not hear. Please open the eyes of our heart that we might know the hope to which you've called us to, that we might experience the limitless dimensions of your love for us in Christ. It is written, if anyone speaks, let him do so according to the strength that God supplies and according to the oracles of God. So, Father, may now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And may the zeal of the Lord of hosts perform all these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, and our only hope. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it's good to be here at Heritage. I owe so much to so many here. So grateful. So grateful for the friendship I've been developing with Trent. I wish that I could be two places at once. Actually, I just wish I could be there to hear him. And... Uh, Wish that I could be back the next week to hear him then again and just to be with you all. I know I don't know many of you, but grateful and hopefully I'll, I'll say a tiny bit later to how um, heritage applies even to the text that I've chosen this morning. Knowing what's happening in an author's life helps you understand a little better the author's writing. So before we get to our passage in the Christian Bible this morning, that's what I want to do is to kind of set the mood and background because knowing what's going on in the author's life helps to understand a little bit better what the author is writing about. Death has a way of showing you what's most important. The old cliche still rings true that you've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. You always leave everything behind, and when they leave you, they leave you behind too. Death is an ugly thing. It's a hateful thing. It's a forced entry at midnight. It's always unwelcomed, always too soon, even when you know that it might be best. When you stare into the face of a dead parent, as my wife and I have done, both a parent this past year, you, stand into, you stare into the face of your own spitting image mortality. You feel orphaned a bit. When Philip Jensen, a Long-time Anglican clergyman lost his grandchild. He lamented like this. Death is the horrible reality of our life that screams, there's something wrong with the world. We try to hide that scream. We silence it with distractions. We pretend it's not happening with anti-aging creams. We rationalize its existence with meaningless platitudes. But there's no greater madness than to think that we can avoid death. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. When is the last time that you actually thought about death? Maybe you're college age, a teenager. Your life seems like it will never end, but there's no guarantee that you will outlive your parents or your friends or your coaches or even your teachers at school. So the writer of Ecclesiastes encourages you now, now, remember the Creator and the days of your youth. And dear brothers and sisters, now, when is the last time you thought of your death? 
We're so preoccupied with questions, spoiled by options, even among churches here in Greenville, right? Which church will fit our needs? Who talked to us today? Which songs resonated with me? We're distracted maybe by another degree, the noise of social media, the care of our jobs, that we've forgotten to stop and think of our own death. And few things are as profitable for us in our digitally saturated, hyper-connected, I have just about everything I need live than to think of our own death. I don't mean in a morbid preoccupation, but with an appropriate reflection as an ancient Jewish proverb actually admonishes us that it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. So when we come to our text this morning, the man is very near death. Death is on his mind. He's not distracted His mind is sharp and focused, and he knows that very soon he's going to leave it all behind. He also knows there's only one thing that will outlast him, one thing that can give life to those who come behind him and even outlive those who come behind him. What is it? Let's think this morning about entrusting the good news. That's what I want us to think about this morning, entrusting the gospel for gospel advance. Would you please locate 2 Timothy 2? I think it's page 995 in the Bible in front of you. 2 Timothy is in the second part of the Christian Bible, page 995. The man who wrote this letter is a converted Jewish rabbi. His name is Paul, and he's on death row for his religious beliefs. This is the second letter that he writes to a friend named Timothy, a young pastor friend. And this is actually Paul's last recorded letter. These are his last words that we have before his head rolls into the dust underneath the executioner's sword in Rome. Paul opens this letter in chapter 1 with a gracious greeting and then a thankful reminder. He reminds Timothy of all the grace that Timothy's seen in his life and the life of his mom and grandmother, grace that actually began in Timothy's life before the beginning of time, chapter 1 and verse 9. And now that God has purposed grace in Timothy's life, purposed it before his birth and poured it out now in his conversion and in his family and in his calling. Now, by the power of the Spirit of God, Paul commands Timothy four things in chapter one. By the power of the Spirit of God, fan into flame these gifts. Don't be ashamed. Endure suffering and guard the gospel, Timothy. When we come to chapter two, Paul gives Timothy four more commands. He's about to die. He wants Timothy to know these things. Do these things. I'm about to expire. He gives Timothy four commands and three illustrations. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Before we read verses 1 to 7 in chapter 2, I just want to give a summary. Let's just fly over these verses, and then we'll read it, and then work through these four commands and three illustrations. Timothy's to guard the gospel, chapter 1, but he's not simply to guard it passively, chapter 2. He's to advance with the gospel. And he gives him four commands in chapter 2 to help him advance. The four commands are all sourced in and motivated by God's grace, mercy, and peace that come to him through Christ by the Spirit. Here are the commands. Look in your text there. Command number 1, verse 1, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace in Christ. Command two, verse two, and trust the gospel of Christ. Command three, verse three, share in suffering for the gospel. And now all the way to verse seven for the fourth command, think about what I'm saying. And after those four commands, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, so you can pace yourself mentally. After those four commands, he comes three illustrations to us. 
carry out this entrusting gospel ministry, Timothy, endure suffering by thinking of a soldier, think of an athlete, and think of a farmer again and again and again. Not only guard the gospel, but advance with it. So, so run with the gospel like an athlete. Fight for the gospel like a, like a soldier. Work hard like a farmer. So here's the summary of what's happening in these verses. Strengthened by the grace of the gospel. Strengthened by the grace of the gospel. Now advance with the gospel. Entrust it. Suffer for it. Endure all things for it. Do all these things for gospel advance, Timothy. Well, if we have our train loaded now, let's pull out. Let's look at the text and read it here. 2 Timothy 1, this is what Holy Scripture says. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, Timothy, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Keep thinking over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word. Of the Lord. Chapter 2 begins with a contrast and a conclusion of chapter 1. Paul ends chapter 1 with a, a sad reminder to Timothy of what it means to follow Christ. All who are in Asia deserted me, Timothy. That's what happens when you follow Christ. But you, my child, there's the contrast. Note the affection that Paul has for Timothy. Timothy, my child. Paul knows as an older man with one foot now in the river of death that walking away from Jesus when you have doubts doesn't resolve any of the ultimate questions of life. As a dying man, he's endured shipwrecks. He's, he's treaded water for his life in the Mediterranean. whose back is still scarred from the 39 lashes from a whip. He knows now as an old man looking death in the eye that there's more comfort in Christ than anything in this temporary world. If the song were written then, he may have hummed as he wrote this text, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. And now comes Paul's first command. Timothy, be strengthened, verse 1, be strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus. I think this is maybe the most important command in the book, certainly in this section this command, be strengthened by the grace in Christ, coupled with the command in verse 8 that we didn't read, remember Christ, those two commands provide the fuel to obey every other command in the book. In other words, the grace that's in Christ supplies the power to obey and follow Christ. It's the gospel of grace, Timothy, that gives you strength to obey these commands now of grace. And beloved, it's always been that way. The Ten Commandments begin that way, don't they? I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, that's the grace. That's the grace. Therefore, since I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, therefore have no other gods before me. And God's grace then not only saves us, it empowers us, it enables us. 
That's why Paul ties every command he gives to Timothy, particularly in chapter one, every command he ties to God's empowering grace. Just listen, listen to chapter one, just how he, what he says to him. Verse, chapter one, verse two, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Verse six, fan into flame the grace gift. Verse eight, share in suffering for the gospel. How do I do that? By the power of God. And what is God's power? It's the gospel that's come because of his grace. Chapter one, verses nine and 10. Paul ties every command to God's empowering grace in Christ. So when we read in chapter two, be strengthened by the grace, he means all the grace that he's described for him in chapter one. Therefore, Timothy, be strengthened by all of this grace that comes to you in Christ by the good news. So that's why this command is one of the most important in the entire letter because it provides the the never-ending fuel supply, the never-ending chain of strength to carry out every other command. Can I use an an image from a really, well, really old uh, cereal commercial? Unless you eat your Wheaties, you don't perform well. If you're Tom Brady, you eat your Cheaties. But that's another story, right? I won't be invited back, I know. Wheaties, right, is the breakfast of champions. Even so, grace is the food of Christians. So Timothy, unless you feed on the grace in Christ, you won't serve Christ well because grace proceeds and it feeds and it equips your obedience. Be strengthened by all the grace in Christ, Timothy. Well, what's this command telling us? Well, I think at least two things. First, it tells us how often we look to grace in Christ. Here is the the command filled out literally and quite pedantically. Timothy, allow yourself to be continually strengthened. Allow yourself to be continually strengthened by the grace in Christ. Here's one example. Under Moses, one morning trip to get manna wasn't enough. Every morning they had to wake up and seek the provision of God. Well, Christ is the fulfillment of that manna. He tells us in John 6, and so we're to pray every day, Lord, give us this day Christ, our daily bread. Every moment we pray, give us this day. This is a command for an active, continual pursuit, a remembrance of the grace of Christ. Second, it tells Timothy where to look. It's simple, but so important. This is the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Thus, friends, this isn't a call, you know, for Timothy to cowboy up, to be like Paul per se, to take a personality test and then play to his strengths. This is a command to do just the opposite. Timothy, don't look in. Look out. Look away to Christ and his grace. Don't look to your work, Timothy, as a pastor. Look to Christ's work for you. Allow yourself to be continually strengthened by his grace. My friends, maybe we could stop for a moment and think about what is grace. Be strengthened by grace. What is grace? If you're not a follower of Christ, I think it'd be helpful to think about this a little with me for the next few moments. For those of us who are believers, we always need to be strengthened by grace. Well, at one level, grace is everything Paul talked about in chapter one. But behind grace, I think, is one main concept. 
God giving me something that I don't deserve. I cannot earn. And more than that, God giving me something instead of what I do deserve. So you cannot demand grace. So if you're, you're here as, and you're not a Christian, people are often confused. They often think that if there's a God, which is a big if, granted, but if there's a God, of course he'll be gracious. That's his job. God is gracious. But friends, is it true that you can demand grace? Imagine the cult leader. The, uh, the serial murderer when he was still alive, Charles Manson, if during one of his lifetime, uh, his lifetime sitting before a judge, he pounded the table and asserted, I demand you show me grace. Or uh, maybe closer to home, at least in my family, your, 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 your children, your brothers, your sisters, they take your favorite toy, your, you know, your baseball card, your, your Pokemon collection, and deliberately throw it in the street at just the time that the trash truck drives by, and then they wheel around on you and say, Forgive me? I demand you show me grace? Well, that's not how grace works, is it? You can't demand grace. You can't even work for it. Friend, have you ever been in a situation in which you needed something that you didn't deserve? That's grace. Even still, we need something instead of what we deserve. And the worse our situation, the more grace we actually need. Now listen, whether you're here this morning and you're religious or not, all of us look for something to give us grace. Some people look to advancement in their career. Some people look to another romance. We all look for grace somewhere. But those things can never save you. They can rule over you. They can tell you that you fail. They can tell you to try harder, but they can't show you grace. For example, it's so popular in our culture to to look inward. Every Disney thing, you know, follow your heart. Uh, you, you watch your, I was in a baseball game in Malden last year and I actually thought, I'm on a film set for Disney. The third base coach looks at the batter and says, listen to your heart and swing. I thought, where am I? What, what just happened? And the kid struck out. <laughs> Poetic justice, I think. But friends, if you, if you look to your desires, what you're really saying is your desires don't free you, they own you. They're not giving you freedom. They're enslaving you. Someone has put it like this. We live for our own glory. We, we want to live to make our name for ourselves, but our names are forgotten. And believe it or not, friends, that's one of the things that God actually calls sin. Everything that we should look for in God, we look for in other places. That's the sin beneath every sin. That's why we all need what we don't deserve. We're all in too deep. Our guilt is too great. We need what we don't deserve. Grace. Let me come at it another angle. Try one more time and move on to the next point. A few years ago, Paul Kalanithi wrote When Breath Becomes Air. It's a sobering little book, well-written book. Kalanithi was a 36-year-old Stanford neurosurgeon. He was diagnosed and eventually died from cancer. And this book is his thoughts as he progresses towards death. It's roughly, roughly like Paul's dying thoughts to Timothy. Kalanithi writes his thoughts. And as one steeped in science and highly trained in the scientific method, Kalanithi makes this observation towards the end of the book. Science may provide the most useful way to organize the empirical reproducible data. But for all that science can do, 
It cannot grasp the most central aspects of human life. Hope, love, beauty, suffering, virtue. Between those core passions and scientific theory, there will always be a gap. In other words, at one level, what Kalanithi is saying is that science doesn't have all the answers, and it certainly can give you grace. Then he reflects, as he goes around different worldviews, he reflects on the Christian worldview, making this observation. Maybe the message of original sin isn't feeling guilty all the time. Maybe it's more along these lines. We all have a notion of what it means to be good And we can't live up to it all the time. Even if you have a notion as well-defined as Leviticus, you can't live that way. It's not just impossible, it's insane. You hear what the scientist is telling us. Science can't give you ultimate answers. It can't give you grace. And you can't even give yourself grace. We all have a notion of what it means to be good, he writes, and we can't live up to that all the time. Our only hope, friends, is that someone outside of ourselves will both forgive us and heal us. And that's the good news about Christ, that God is the loving creator, wise, caring, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of obedience and love and mercy, the life that we can't live and that we won't live. And then Jesus dies on the cross because we're all in too deep. We all need what we don't deserve. We need grace. And on the third day, he rose from the dead in a real body. And if you today let go of your own work, if you stop looking to yourself and and you look to Christ and his work alone, then you will have more than enough grace. Grace not only to save you, but to enable you. Friend, right, right, right now in your seat, you can do that in your mind. That you would call out to the Lord. Lord, forgive me. I can't even live up to my own standard of goodness, let alone yours. I need mercy. I need grace that I don't deserve. I'm no longer king of my life. You are. And Jesus is my only hope in life and death. Friend, I'd love to talk to you more about that after if you're thinking of those kinds of questions or, or somebody that you came with this morning or those around you. There's nothing more important for you to think about and the grace of God in Christ. And beloved, as we, as those who are Christians, remember grace in Christ, we remember again and again that we've been given what what we don't deserve. We remember that we've been shown patience instead of swift justice. That we've been welcomed home instead of remaining as outcasts. That we have been loved when we were unfaithful. We've been forgiven when we deserve to pay up. That we can now look to his wounds and no longer to our own. And when we do such things, what's happening? We're allowing ourselves to be strengthened continually by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. I'd encourage you to get with another member of Heritage this week. Think how a sustained reflection on the grace of Christ will enable you to face what's happening in your life right now. Timothy, be strengthened continually by the grace of in Christ. And now we're ready for the second command. Paul tells us in verse 2, entrust the gospel to others. Empowered now by the grace in Christ, entrust the gospel to others. And Paul tells us four things in this command. He tells us first what Timothy's to entrust. When he says, entrust what you've heard from me, 
He just explained in chapter 1. It's the gospel. Timothy, I want you to entrust the gospel. Then he tells us the reliability of the gospel that he is to entrust. Timothy, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. When he says in the presence of many witnesses, he means things that have been attested to by many witnesses. Friends, the Bible's located in historical reality. It's real history. You should never believe any church slogan or anybody who tells you that Christianity can't be explained, it can be only experienced. That's just rubbish. Nor is it accurate to think that Christianity is based on a myth or the like. Paul is telling Timothy the good news about Jesus is attested to by many witnesses. There's historical particularity to Christianity. Christianity turns on certain factual things having happened. That's one of the many things that makes Christianity different, say, from Buddhism. If Buddha never lived, the five noble truths still endure. It never, doesn't really matter. But everything hinges on historical events for Christianity. As a Christian, right, you can't pull Luke Skywalker and just kind of trust your feelings and use the force. Thus, you know, remind yourselves brothers and sisters, remind yourselves that Paul doesn't say, well, you know, if you press me on it, I suppose it's not that big of a deal. He's risen in our hearts. He's risen metaphorically. No, Paul doubles down, doesn't he? If Christ isn't back from the dead, then we're all hosed. We're all miserable. I know that many of us, college age, lots of young people in our church coming into questions about how we got the Bible and Why is there suffering and the like? Those are great questions. Christianity has good answers for those questions. And and Jesus, God himself says, come, let us reason together. Let's walk through these things together. And now Paul's reminding us, he's reminding us the good news about Jesus is reliable. It's been attested in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy. And trust the reliable gospel. Now two more things in this command. To whom... Is Timothy to entrust the reliable gospel and why? To whom and why? Well, entrust this reliable gospel to, verse 2, faithful men. Let's think about this for a moment. Walk through it. The primary reference, I think, in the context is Paul's telling Timothy to entrust the gospel to faithful men. It's true that the word here for men can refer to men and women. The word, however, is commonly used for men in key texts. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says it's good for a man and not to have sexual relations with a, a woman. Or in Ephesians 5, when he goes all the way back to the created order, he uses this word. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So the word does have some, so it can be used for men or women. Paul uses this word, nevertheless, in key passages to biological Males. And the context is always the king anyway. What's the context of the word being used here? Well, Paul is writing as a pastor to a pastor, telling him what his primary role is. And his job is to entrust the gospel to those who will be able to teach. Now, there at the, near the end of verse 2 is that word able to teach. It's the same word Paul uses in, in 1 Timothy 3 to describe elders have to be able to teach. So Paul's telling Timothy to entrust the gospel to those who are able to teach, to those who are or who will be elders. But what's the point? Even as Paul has reproduced himself in Timothy, 
Timothy is to reproduce himself and other faithful men too. Now just for a moment, Heritage Bible Church, I want to tell you that Emmanuel Bible Church exists at one human level because this church was faithful to this command. And I want to encourage you that, you may not be encouraged by me, but be encouraged that that I'm a visible product of this congregation setting aside money and encouraging pastors to pour themselves into the lives of other men so the gospel advances. I'm evidence. Thank you for your faithfulness to obeying this kind of text and insist that your pastors here Stop doing other things and concentrate on this thing. This is how the gospel advances. I could even say, just personally, Sandy is one of the brothers here who's poured himself into my life. Sandy, thank you. You have modeled this text for me as part of this congregation who set you apart to do that. Brothers and sisters, entrust the gospel to faithful men for gospel advance. Now let me... Make this comment too. Please don't think that any of this means that that ladies shouldn't pursue a rich study of God's word. Everybody's a theologian. Everybody has thoughts about God and everybody should be seeking to make their thoughts about God better and deeper and richer. We're all theologians. Nor does Paul's focus in this occasional letter overlook other ways he talks about discipleship in other letters like Titus 2, for example. And as for the importance of ladies advancing the gospel... Don't look any further than Timothy's own life. If you're familiar with chapter one, do you remember one of the ways that Paul encourages Timothy? Timothy, remember the grace given to you. Give me an example, Paul. Your own mother and grandmother shared the gospel with you and brought you up in the gospel. What an invaluable role women play in shaping the next generation of Timothy's. Do you know what led to the great theologian Augustine's conversion? The prayers of his mother chased him down, Monica. And what about Charles Spurgeon? Surely one of the greatest preachers in the Western world. Someone remarked that Spurgeon was so talented that if he weren't a preacher, he would have become the prime minister of England. Do you know who Spurgeon credits with being the biggest theological influence of his life? A lady named Mary King. When Spurgeon was a teenager, he attended New Market Academy in Cambridge, England, Mary King was the cook for the school. She was so associated with that role that her nickname, she just, no one called her Mary King, they called her Cook. And Spurgeon said, Mary the cook fed us far more than food. Here's what he writes in his autobiography. She was a good old soul. And I believe I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays. He dedicated his first book to Mary King the cook with these words from her, I got all the theology I ever needed. And he loved to say in his life, a cook taught me theology. So listen, the primary application is pastors going after faithful men. But by extension, brothers and sisters, all of us ought to be entrusting the gospel to someone. It should be normal for you to read your Bible with another Christian in this church. That's normal Christianity. And yet now back to the text, just as Jesus spent most of his time with 12 apostles to entrust the gospel, so Paul calls Timothy, do the same, go after faithful men. What if you're not a pastor? 
Well, target the members of this congregation. Simplify your life. You join this church. Put all of your prayer and your time and your resources and your discipleship care efforts here. Beyond that, there's an old expression. I'm sure some of you heard it. You know, who, you know who you look for to encourage? You look for fat people. Faithful, available, and teachable. Not everyone is faithful to church or to the Sunday school electives or shepherding group. So look for someone who's faithful to those things. Don't fixate on the people at the edges, Timothy. Sure, pull them in now and again, but don't focus all of your time there. Go after the faithful. Second, your schedule doesn't match with everybody else's. Don't feel guilty about it and don't let people make you feel guilty about it. Find someone whose schedule does match yours. Meet with them. That's available. Third, look for someone who shows a hunger for knowing God more, better. That's available, teachable, faithful. And your pastors here, and I push this, take this text. Your pastors here, as happy as they are to be a part of all the parts of your lives, weddings and birthday parties and concerts, that is not their primary job. Their primary role is to entrust the reliable gospel to men who show a competency to teach so that the gospel advances from one generation to the next. And if you step back from this, there's a, Paul has a really long view. Paul, what's your mission? What's your mission? What's your vision? You know my vision is? Four generations. The gospel you heard from me, you entrust to others who will be able to entrust to others too. Paul is thinking four generations down the road and this is how you do it. What's the gospel? It'll endure generation after generation after generation after generation and trust the gospel for gospel advance. This past year, I saw this fulfilled in a precious, heartbreaking way. My wife's mom, I mentioned earlier, she died from cancer in August. And as she lay dying, there was a picture in my mind of like Jacob calling in his children, getting their last blessing. We had to get special permission for our Grand, her grandkids to come in because she still had chemo and they, this kind of thing. And Go in. You guys can go in. And to my oldest daughter who got to go in, she said with very labored breathing, she put her hand, grabbed her hand, and she said, remember God's word, deep labor breath, and you'll always have joy. Her last words to my daughter. Having entrusted the gospel to her daughter, my wife, she was now entrusting it to her granddaughter. And you know what happened? The gospel that Paul entrusted to Timothy is the same one my mother-in-law entrusted to her children and her granddaughter because someone somewhere entrusted it to my mother-in-law first. And we entrust the gospel to others for gospel advance. We come to the third command. Share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. Paul gave this command already in Chapter one, beloved, I just want to tell us all, we need to get out of our minds that if you're a Christian, you won't have to suffer. The longer you look at the cross, you come to the strange realization that suffering is written to the fabric of the world. Everyone is in here today because a mom suffered to give you life. And everyone in here who has new life is here because Christ suffered to give eternal life. And so Paul is saying, do you see this? The gospel advances because you suffer, not in spite of it. This is the way it advances. Suffer and see it advance. Now Paul gives three illustrations of these commands. 
Three illustrations for advancing the gospel. Think of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Think of what they have in common before we think of what might be slightly different. I think they have in common pressure, perseverance, and a prize. They all involve a measure of pressure. Whether you're a soldier or you're an athlete or you're a farmer, you're going to have to go through pressure and hardship. And I think Paul is saying, what did you expect it would be like, Timothy? What did you think pastoral ministry was like? It involves intense pressure and hardship, like a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. And second, these all involve perseverance. How else does a soldier or an athlete or a farmer experience gain unless he perseveres? So what do you do when you face pressure? You persevere, Timothy. Third, these all involve a prize. The soldier works for the prize of the well done from his commanding officer, the athlete, the victor's laurel crown, the farmer of the produce of his field. So here's Paul telling Timothy, share in suffering by facing pressure, by meeting with perseverance and keeping your eye on the prize like Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, thought little of the cross. Now think of each different illustration. Verse four is the soldier. Think of the unentangled, single-minded soldier, Timothy. A soldier in war has to ignore certain good things because they're not necessary for the mission. A soldier in war cannot be consumed with civilian affairs like buying a house, a nicer car, drinks at happy hour, keeping up with Facebook and Instagram. You can't be entangled by these kinds of things, Timothy. Think of what it means for you, Timothy and Heritage Bible Church. Second, Think about an athlete who competes with self-control. Verse 5, that's the other image. I think what Paul is saying, an athlete has to compete lawfully, whether in training or for the games. It requires the virtue of self-mastery, self-control, this gift of the Spirit you must show. Many Christians will want to talk about how grace frees them to do this or that or to watch this and find redemptive themes in this or that. But few talk about grace often like Paul does. Paul talks about a grace that enables him to use self-discipline control, self-mastery for gospel's advance. Don Carson writes that God is more interested in our holiness than our comfort. He wants us to pursue daily death, not self-fulfillment. Self-fulfillment leads to death. Daily death leads to life. Think of the self-controlled athlete. And the final illustration, he speaks of the hard-working farmer. I think it means the hard, hard-working farmer and delayed gratification. I spoke to someone in my church this past year who tried a garden and it was a flop. Listen, it's hard work. And so is pastoral ministry, Timothy. So is the Christian life. We're not wrestling with weeds and rocks and insects. We're wrestling with principalities and powers and sins of people who are energized by the evil one. And then the hardworking farmer waits a month, months, sometimes years for the perfect crop. Think about the hard, hardworking farmer who never sees immediate results, Timothy. And now this final command And all of these images are meant for further reflection and application. So he ends verse 7, this section. Keep thinking over what I say. And here's the final promise in the section. 
and the Lord will give you understanding. Paul invites us in for ongoing meditation, for how God's grace through these illustrations strengthens us. And the chapter opens with God's grace, verse 1, and it ends with a promise of more grace, verse 7. Keep thinking about these things, and the Lord will most certainly give you clarity. Thus, strengthened by the grace of the gospel, advance with it, and trust it, suffer for it, endure all things through it, like a single-minded soldier, like a self-controlled athlete, like a hard-working farmer, for gospel advance. January 7th, 1891, Charles Spurgeon gave his last sermon His words sound an awful lot like Paul's final words to Timothy as it relates to God's grace and playing the part of a grace-equipped soldier. We'll close with these words from Spurgeon. Listen, it is heaven to serve Jesus. I'm a recruiting sergeant, and I would fain find a few recruits at this very moment. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it, you will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. And when you come to the Savior, you will find in the most magnanimous of captains that never was like him among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. Though when the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders, If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there's anything that is gracious and kind and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you find it in Christ. These 40 years and more have I served him, blessed be his name, and I found nothing but love from him. And I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in that same dear service here below, if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, and joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once and God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this very day. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Now equip us to do what you called us to do with the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Finish these words for our joy and your glory. 